This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. When I met Emily Woods, who started J.Crew, and ended up working with her and her for about eight months, she was the one who really told me, somewhat apologetically, because she was already out of J. Crew. She's like, I'm sorry to tell you, you're a fashion designer, but this is how you think. This is the way you put ideas together, the way you communicate ideas. Hi, everyone. I'm Amy Devers. I'm Jamie Derringer, and this is Clever. Today, we're talking to fashion designer Scott Sternberg. Scott took a circuitous route to the fashion industry by way of an economics education, a love of cinema and photography, and a stint as a Hollywood agent. He really made a name for himself with Band of Outsiders, a fashion brand he launched in 2004 of just slightly off-kilter but very tailored classics. Band of Outsiders was beloved and definitely enjoyed a loyal cult following. People were legitimately saddened and distraught when he announced in 2015 that he was leaving the brand. But he took what he learned from that chapter and is using it to author a new fashion brand of everyday basics called Entire World. We were excited to talk to him, and you'll even hear an audio cameo from Scott's dog, General Zod. So let's get the story. Kneel before Zod. I'm Scott Sternberg. I'm in Los Angeles, California, where I work and live. And I'm the founder and creative director of Entire World, uh, which is... Um, an apparel company. And I do that because I, I think that fashion and style and, and what we wear every day is, a, is an important part of how we get through the world and define ourselves and how we build communities. I, I'm interested to hear about this community component because I agree with you and I want to hear you elaborate on it. But before we get there, we got to go all the way back to the start, to the very beginning. Can you tell us about your childhood? I, I understand you were born in Dayton, Ohio, correct? Yes. Sexy <laughs> Dayton, Ohio. Hey, I'm a Michigander, so the Midwest is pretty sexy, I think. I, yeah, I have no uh, only pride for, for, for growing up in Ohio, and I, I was just back there for the fourth. Um, it's a beautiful place. It's a great place. It's 
Mm-hmm. It's a place that probably in today's political climate, people out in LA or New York don't quite understand. Um, but it's, right. a, it's a place that I've always known as, uh, you know, you grow up with people who don't look like you necessarily or share the same uh, worldview as you. And that's just the way the world is. It was a nice sort of idyllic-ish childhood with um, requisite darkness Ooh. sort of built in. Can you elaborate on the requisite darkness? <laughs> it uh, can be both wonderful and uh, hard to be a kid. I have a great family. I had an older sister, mom and dad, still married after 50 years, um, but probably for various reasons felt like once I could sort of really start to get a sense of my own identity and a sense of the sort of tenor and, and sort of aesthetic of the community around me, like I definitely started to feel like an outsider at an early age, something mm-hmm. I both em- both embraced. And um, that was confusing, um, mm-hmm. just sort of in that search for uh, identity and, and articulating identity and and finding finding my place in the world. Can I ask you if you felt like an outsider within your family? dynamic within your family system? Did you feel understood? Yes and no. Listen, I'm a, I'm a child of the boomers. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was definitely a period when my boomer parents were out having a good time. And I was certainly not a latchkey child, but mm-hmm. was just sort of at home watching MTV or playing with a computer and, and or video game and just sort of like uh, building my imagination, essentially, mm-hmm. uh, spending a lot of time alone. You know, I'm I'm gay and I'm 44 years old. So if you do the math, back in 1980, early 80s, when I figured that out, there were very few positive, just general role models that I could look to to gain understanding what my life might grow into and and uh, what any of that meant. So, and, you know, in that respect, I definitely felt like an outsider. But you know, at the same time, my sister had her own shit growing up. And that was much more apparent visually. She was, uh, she's not a thalidomide baby, but my mom was given some sort of drug that lots of women in the 70s were given for some trimester to ease some sort of pain or swelling or something. And my sister was born without her left arm, essentially. Oh, my goodness. Um, yeah. So she's, you know, a couple years and wore a prosthetic and then that looked like a hook and then wore a prosthetic that looked like a hand. And so, you know, her, her lot in life always felt a lot harder than mine. Mine was internal. Hers was just completely external. And I think in any in any community of adolescence or high school or any of that, in any city, let alone a city like Dayton, Ohio, which can be pretty brutal, mm-hmm. um, she had a tough time. And, and it was a, an overtly tough time that everybody could see and understand. Whereas I was sort of experiencing all that uh, internally, figuring all that out without outside conflict. Yes, and also probably hypersensitive to what your sister was going through. So maybe were you deferring your own needs in favor of what she was going through? More like, great, everybody's dealing with her. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to get inside my brain and and entertain myself. I'm going to read books and, again, watch a lot of MTV, play with a few friends, you know, steal some magazines, whatever it was. So I, I sort of appreciated it. It gave me space, yeah, uh, which I which I desperately wanted. When you figured out you were gay, did you in- struggle with that internally before you made it known outwardly? 
it was something that I never was like, there wasn't like self-hatred about it. I was able to sort of, I didn't feel superior or anything like that, but I was able to, I knew I was different and I knew what that was. And the few role models I did have, one of whom was an interior designer that's my, one of my parents' best friends. He was so chic and cool and smart and fun. And I started to feel like it was a potential advantage in life and, and not something that was that was so horrible. Reconciling how and when that could actually be something I embraced uh, publicly took a while because the world was just in a different place mm -hmm. back then. It was incredibly, from a legal perspective and from a just general cultural temperature perspective, it wasn't so clear how, how one would build a life, certainly in Dayton, Ohio, um, which is why I probably always plan to get out of there. But I wasn't so tortured about it. And I came out right at the end of college, which uh, when the temperature felt right, uh, when it felt like I could do it without hurting anybody and without just sort of seamlessly just sliding into my adulthood. Mm -hmm. um, I moved out to Los Angeles right after school. Most of my, my friends moved to the East Coast and sort of had a blank slate to just to continue being exactly me. Like nothing really changed in terms of how I, how I presented myself and my interests or even my friends. It was a, not a dirty little secret. It was a giddy little secret. It was something that, that made me different and, and, and kind of a cool way. Yeah. I can hear that. I can almost kind of see it in your work too. I mean, it sounds like that time when you were watching a lot of MTV and movies maybe is where your love of cinema took root and your imagination. Yeah. I can see yeah. you creating this really rich interior world that felt like a safe place, but also a place where anything can happen. Very much so. And like a, in my own sort of sense of logic of how things fit together in the world and what was important to me and, and what felt superfluous. And I still, to this day, appreciate that that I wouldn't call it like solitude because it's not necessarily even being physically alone, but you know, my mind can wander off quite purposefully, sh shut out most of the world and just live in that space where trying to draw dotted lines between ideas and feelings and products and whatever it might be that, that are floating around in there. What were the early manifestations of your creativity? Like during this time, I can hear you soaking up a lot of influences, but were you outputting too? There was a dearth of potential platforms for output, right? Like mm -hmm. it wasn't until I was in college that I really got deeply into film. And I spent a summer at NYU taking the sight and sound courses, which were like crash course, 16 millimeter filmmaking and editing classes. Zod, take it down a notch, bud. As a kid, I where I really started getting, um, other than a little bit of art class sort of drawing stuff and doodling, really when I got, for my 16th birthday, instead of getting a new car, I got the, the Mac Classic that they had reintroduced that year, that perfect, beautiful, little taupe gray box. Um, and you get the computer and it's like, okay, well, what do I do now? There was no internet connectivity or anything. But the sort of rudimentary graphic design layout software that was on there, I got really into. And that was sort of my first graphic design, which is still a big part of my discipline, was the first sort of medium or platform and that and the, the working digitally with those really old but cool, you know, sort of Susan Care icon vibe. You know, those days, that's where it all got started. So how did you end up studying economics in college? Because that's what 
the responsible <laughs> person who got a 4.0 grade point average and did really well at math and science and shouldn't go to college and study art history type of guy does. But you, you did minor in photography. Was that like your creative escape? Yes, that was very much so. And here's the thing. My brain is not like full artist or anything. Mm. I immensely enjoyed economics. I studied with a Nobel Prize winning professor. I wrote a thesis my senior year that actually got me out to LA. And, you know, economics is, it's not finance. It's a social science like psychology or sociology. And it's really just understanding how people or communities or nations or nation states or whatever interact and, and build and fail and all that stuff. So with math and statistics and probability and all that built in. And I really enjoyed that. Um, I, I enjoyed exercising that part of my brain and, and I really excelled. I didn't really know how I was excelling so much. It was, uh, it was, I was just, it was, I was getting it. It wasn't a stretch. And I, so, and I appreciate that education it, from a problem solving sort of decision tree perspective, like in being an entrepreneur and having, or even a designer and always having just infinite options in front of me and having to nail them down and make decisions like my economics education, the core ideas of microeconomics really uh, still uh, to this day inform a lot of how I, how I operate. The photography became really important though, because that was sort of a, a connection, the first connection to sort of cinema before I went to NYU. And then also an extension of what I was doing with that Mac classic, which was using technology to sort of play with ideas and realize realize ideas and uh, start to develop my my eye, uh, my edit on the world. Um, mm -hmm. And that really started casually with a friend. Then I just got super into it. And it was a time when, you know, it wasn't digital. We were in a dark room and doing all that stuff. And some of that stuff felt silly and frustrating. I wasn't really in it for the craft in that in that respect. But the critiques and the sort of just really understanding that sort of language of you know how you talk about images how they fit into the history of photography or art history it was really helpful really cool i'm just wondering if you started to find a personal satisfaction in being able to evoke feelings and senses and memories and reactions out of other people through the photos that you could create that's a i love everything you just said it's very much how i think i don't think i was successful at it uh in photography until maybe the end photography was the means for me to really start working out those muscles and understanding that aesthetic achieving an aesthetic which is probably at first something that you're appropriating from another image you're copying something you like um or yeah that's how we all get our feet wet yeah totally totally which is which is okay. You, it's sort of just a ground level from which to start. College was with photography was just working through all that stuff. What is my unique proprietary perspective? Uh, and how does that manifest itself in the way I frame the photograph, the subject, how I print it, all that stuff. For sure through that and through some of the filmmaking classes that I took, it's really quickly started to get away from this idea of let's satisfy the requirements of a critique mm -hmm. and let's make people feel something. 
And when you can make people feel something, then you're really communicating. But you're communicating in a completely different language. It feels like connection to humanity. <laughs> it's, it's powerful. Major. It's major. Yeah. It's, it's and it's exactly how I was able to justify jumping into fashion design and constantly remind myself of so why I'm doing it. Because that's that's a pretty incredible thing. It's interesting as I through the years I've hired so many designers and very few of them are in that place, uh, are coming from that place. They're wonderful technicians or have fantastic taste, style, um, aesthetic. But over the years, I've tried to you know instill that in, in the ones that I've mentored. But I don't know. It's something I, I would hope would have been done earlier by other teachers or uh, been talked about, you know, in a sort of more base way as that this is what design is versus, ooh, cool things and surface and surface and aesthetic. Yeah, because I feel that's so fascinating. What kind of stands out from your time in Hollywood? What'd you learn? Gosh, I started as an assistant at a big talent agency and I worked for a talent agent for actors and it was full on Hollywood. Yeah. Weird. <laughs> yes. And what I learned was through that job and then a, a short stint working for a big screenwriter at a writer's room and, and sort of as an administrative assistant and development assistant, in a very short amount of time, I learned that I want nothing to do with any of this. <laughs> it's a, an industry that I guess the nice way to say it is hyper collaborative and that it requires so many people and so much money to get a project off the ground. And so many of those projects just will completely uh, fail, whether they mm -hmm. never take flight or whether they get made and they suck. It's just, it's not set up like for productive creative output, at least in the way that I would have wanted to work. I, I felt really early on it, that I, I loved the idea of media and I loved the, I loved film, uh, but I was able to come to a conclusion within a couple of years that I can love movies, but this doesn't need to be how I how I make a living, uh, which was a that was a pivotal moment, like separating this idea of not a hobby, but that something can be profoundly meaningful to me. And I can be incredibly knowledgeable and spend a lot of time learning about film and watching film, but I don't have to make money off of it. I don't have to, you know, sort of exploit it for a career where I spent most of my time in Hollywood was uh, from 99 to 2003, I was an agent at CAA, the talent agency, and doing what was called new media at the time, which is just digital media now. And kind of looking at the 30,000 foot larger view of where everything was going because of technology and how that was going to change how we consume music and uh, television and film and how that was going to change all the deals that the agency made with talent and buyers and how that was going to change the nature of, of the creative, of the form of storytelling. And that I found compelling, like the economic side of my brain. Mm -hmm. um, and, I, and I enjoyed it. It was a job that I think after my first week starting there, I said, okay, I am not going to work here for the rest of my life, which everybody else in that agency or like 80% of them probably plan on doing. It's the way those companies are built. They're like the firm that John Grisham novel that was made into a Sidney Pollock movie with Tom Cruise 
It's actually terrifying. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but you know, like they love it. It's, I was also jealous because it, it was like, gosh, if I only just wanted to work here the rest of my life, I'd be so satisfied. I'd have this whole system of rewards and this hierarchy to, to sort of ascend and all of that. But I was so clear that I didn't want to work there. I wasn't a lifer. So it gave me a lot of levity for the next few years working there just to learn. And what I took out of that time was an understanding that I was an entrepreneur, that I was not the guy who would represent talent or the middleman who would put together deals, but that I was the guy who would generate ideas uh, with a lot of gumption and uh, probably a little too much courage and try to realize those ideas. And I also realized that I was a pretty good graphic designer by default, because there just wasn't this discipline within the company. And we were spending a lot of our time in this division pitching the company's consulting services to everybody from Coca-Cola to dot-coms that were you know, desperate to be connected to celebrities and networks and all that stuff. I just really, by luck, the president of the agency, the first week I started, something fell on my desk to, to design a, a speech he was giving to uh, the innovation team at Coca-Cola. I find it very natural to sort of tell a story visually. PowerPoint, strangely, is like this medium that I love um, still to this <laughs> day. I, I use it for everything. Like anytime we're even internally pitching some, an idea, putting together a pop-up, It's there's something about how quick and easy it is. I know how to, all the shortcuts and it's there's no te- technology doesn't get in the way of, of storytelling. Anyway, so that's sort of what I took away from there. And when there was a real opportunity to get out, I took it uh, without thinking twice. And that was the end of Hollywood. Wow. It's all starting to make sense. And yet there is no linear path here, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> which is kind of really cool. I love that the econ side of your brain is still active through all of this. and. Yeah. The pivotal moment where you decided that you did you can love movies and movies can influence your work, but it doesn't have to be where you make your living is huge and something I can totally relate to in terms of you have a desire to execute on these ideas, but you don't need to work within the industry. Those disparate forces at play in your life come together to form a third new thing that doesn't mm-hmm. exist yet. So you're taking all of this that you've learned from from college and from your time in Hollywood, your understanding of storytelling through technology and your desire to affect people and how they feel and build mm-hmm. community. And somehow you decided you could be a fashion designer without any formal training. You have to tell us how this all came together for Band of Outsiders. Yeah. Yeah. I know it's, it's really weird. The missing piece of that story is growing up, my parents, my mom in particular, was obsessed with Ralph Lauren, and my parents loved to shop. And it was a time, it was a golden age of retail where shopping was a thing. We would drive to Chicago and, and go to a store that was called Ultimo at the time and look at these beautiful objects as if they were art and museum. And we would go to the outlets or uh, the Ralph Lauren outlets and Benetton and Esprit outlets and just, you know, go to town and So I grew up with retail sort of in my blood and Ralph Lauren specifically in my blood. I loved less about getting dressed up myself and more just about the colors and the textures and the patches and the, just the whole intricacy of that, that world and that product. 
And when I became an agent at CAA, they pay you pretty well. So I had money to buy clothes. And I was out here in LA where there were just amazing boutiques like Maxfield and at the time Ron Herman, where I would spend money on uh, Mew Mew Men's and Margiela and Dries Van Noten and these brands that I had never heard of, but were was discovering and loving and was enjoying the retail experience. And mm-hmm. so I was getting into clothes and I was, I had a very fluid sense of how to put them together. I never went through this awkward period of like dressing, like not my personality, <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, which happens to, to people. I knew really clearly how to walk into a store and find something that was me and buy it and wear it in a way that was cool. And so that was all happening, but I never took that seriously. And this is sort of the inverse of, of the Hollywood thing. I never took that seriously as something that I could do. I, I grew up watching um, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous and Elsa Clench style on CNN. And, and fashion was this rarefied world where Karl Lagerfeld was, came out of the womb with a, with a pen and a sketch pad drawing beautiful gowns and stuff. I had never looked into fashion as a design uh, discipline and what it even took to get there. I never even thought about it. It seemed like it was beyond my grasp. You know, towards the end of CAA, before I took this little job, that this bridge in between CAA and, and band, I was thinking really hard. Like, yeah, I'm okay, I'm an entrepreneur and I have a lot of ideas. And from a visual perspective, like what an ad can be, all this stuff, I, where the world's at and, and what what tone, the way people want to be spoken to at that point in time, all that stuff was floating around, but I didn't have a platform or a product or a, I didn't know what I was, business I was going to start. I didn't, I, I couldn't totally put that together. And that was a, that was a dialogue I was having with, with my mentor at CAA and, and several friends. And it just hit me when I met Emily Woods, who started J. Crew with her dad, Arthur Senator. And ended up working with her and her husband for about eight months. She was the one who really told me with somewhat apologetically, because uh, she was already out of J. Crew. She's like, I'm sorry to tell you, you're a fashion designer. I know that sounds insane. <laughs> and you think you're, like, you're, you're, you're smarter than that or something. But this is how you think. This is the way you put ideas together, the way you communicate ideas, and the way you dress and the way you see the world. Like this is uh, this is unique worldview and this is fashion. You should start a business. That was a pivotal moment. Moment. Um, she's an, wow. an incredibly candid woman, a very mysterious, uh, elusive woman. She has no interest in uh, celebrity or press or any of that, but really is responsible for building J. Crew and to this cultural phenomenon, pre-Mickey Drexler, pre-all that Jenna Lyons stuff when it was a catalog business that was really innovative. Once I was able to sort of accept that, mm-hmm. um, really quickly, I started Band of Outsiders in, in no time. And, and I started it in a way that was so insular and small. I did it out of Los Angeles, out of my home. And I only made shirts and ties at the beginning from vintage dead stock fabric. It was just this really contained little project that I had come up with with this very expansive idea for a brand. I had taken a few classes in illustration, not fashion illustration, just sort of gestural, just, you know, those classes where you, you look at the thing and then you close your eyes and you have to draw it type of thing. 
just to get more comfortable with pen and paper and all that. And it, it's mm-hmm. really important, I think, regardless of how good I am at, at PowerPoint or digital stuff, it's really important to be able to communicate with my team or anybody. I have to be able to sketch even like a 2D something to start the process of getting something made or start the process of getting the team on board to, to help fabricate something. So it really started in a way like looking back, I know my parents thought I was a little crazy, but they're the most supportive. I know my friends definitely thought I was, I'd lost my mind because all of a sudden it was like, poof, I'm a fashion designer. But I didn't describe it that way. I said, I'm with sort of not fake humility, but probably too much humility. I'm just making shirts and ties. And that's all I really said for the first couple of years. I think when I started making women's clothes a few years in, that's when I really started to become confronted with the choices, design choices, and would make them with a sense of conviction and would be able to look at myself in the mirror and say, hey, you're a fashion designer. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Clever is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. A recent episode took Brad to Venice, where he connected with Eve Ubelman, a partner whose company, Econem, has developed a game-changing technique for creating digital architectural models so comprehensive they've been dubbed twins. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone-captured photography and powerful AI to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. On Tools and Weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Clever listeners, we're getting excited for New York Design Week in May. This year will be better than ever. ICFF, North America's leading platform for contemporary design, will take place from May 19th to the 21st at the Javits Center in New York City. I'll be there, and I'm excited to let you know how Clever is collaborating with ICFF for Launchpad at Wanted, formerly known as Wanted Design Manhattan, and the Emerging Designer Showcase. Launchpad is an international platform for emerging designers that introduces new concepts and showcases prototypes of furniture, home accessories, and lighting. 
It is the best place for manufacturers to meet new designers, discover fresh ideas, and potential products to develop. The best of Launchpad winners will be selected by a jury of renowned industry professionals led by yours truly. And they will go on to be featured in another edition of the popular Emerging Designers Showcase. I'll be leading the Emerging Designers Showcase live on the talk's main stage, where the five Launchpad finalists will have a chance to present their projects to our esteemed panel of professionals. It's always a really good time. So mark your calendars for Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Both Launchpad and the Emerging Designer Showcase are presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Visit icff.com to learn more and register to attend. Those are the letters icff.com. Come by and say hi. I would love to see you there. Support for Clever comes from Wix Studio. Instead of reading you another, let's be honest, boring ad script, Wix Studio just sent me this wild-looking Alice in Wonderland-themed website to scroll through and tell you about. So, whoa. This is not the web I'm used to. There's something called Mouse Parallax, which makes it feel like you can go deeper into the screen. And as I scroll down, it's like I'm falling down the rabbit hole. And things are moving in depth and perspective. Even my cursor has morphed into a glowing little orb. There are all these no-code animations that make this place feel organic and alive. And Alice is wearing some pretty cool shoes, by the way. Okay, I know I'm mixing up my narratives now, but we are definitely not in Kansas anymore. Your turn to go down the rabbit hole. Build your next web project on Wix Studio, the platform for agencies and enterprises. Did you have a sense of when you're making these shirts and ties out of vintage dead stock fabric or even design choices for women, did you did you have a sense of the power of how a person feels when they put on your garment and wanting to make them feel a certain way? And were you sort of designing cinema by dressing your characters? There's so many considerations. Some of them are conscious and some of them are, are subconscious, right? So mm-hmm. I think the cinema stuff was just built into everything. That was so much of my worldview, especially in terms of style, men's and women's style. And playing with this idea of nostalgia that wasn't necessarily meant to be sweet nostalgia mm-hmm. and, and playing with this idea of, which is a little more heady and less about feelings or emotions, but Band of Outsiders was preppy clothes that were meant to be about preppy clothes. They were a little bit meta. In the short term, Mm -hmm. that took its form in silhouette. The men's shirts were tiny and the ties were really skinny. And yeah, those tiny little men's shirts were meant to, because at the time everything was way bigger and they were very colorful as were the ties and everything I had been shopping for was black and gray and taupe and very European. They were meant to be on a floor at Barney's and contrast to everything else to stand out. And when you button that shirt up, it would really hug your body. And it was meant to sort of take you back to Mm -hmm. a different time that you couldn't quite nail down because it never quite existed because we we weren't replicating. I wasn't replicating. It was just inspired Mm -hmm. by, Mm -hmm. uh, and less inspired by like a picture up on a mood board and more inspired by a, like a memory 
Uh, so it, it's a little more hazy. It's a little more imperfect. It's an interpretation. But for sure, and with women's, it, you can't get away from it because with, with men's, it's very personal. I'm designing for myself still to this day. And I'm designing for that attitude and my style. And I'm thinking about how I feel in the clothes. And it's, it's very easy and fluid and personal. With women's, it's incredible how women of all types, shapes, sizes, a fit model, Nicole, who's worked for me for years and years, who's very much the muse and collaborator with the women's stuff. It's women just feel uh, so much more uh, immediately, overtly, and clearly. They have an opinion about what they're wearing. They, they, they feel it. They're, they're way more in touch with their bodies. Their bodies are way more diverse than men. So whether you want to or not, as a fashion designer, when you're fitting a garment, like if you're doing it right, I surround myself with women. And that's all I want to know is how they feel about it and how they feel in it and what it makes them feel. And sometimes the answer is not always positive for all of them. And that's okay, too, because that means that for somebody else, it will be. This idea of trying to make everybody feel good all the time isn't necessarily good design. But just to elicit feeling, yes, I think it's important, and, and a specificity, totally, of what the feeling is that you're eliciting. It's not just a generalized. We have all of our fall samples coming in right now, shoot samples, and there's a T-shirt that I completely forgot that we made. It's a graphic tee, which we haven't done yet with Entire World because it's a very, very, very pure set of design codes. But I had thrown it in and the product development person didn't realize I canceled it. And it's it's for this pop-up we're going to have in October. And it says, uh, in quotes, I just want to feel it. And it's just a quote that I made up. And nobody in the studio totally like understands it. But as we've been talking about all this feeling stuff, I it's become more prescient. I should send you an image of the shirt. I can't decide what to do with it, though. It's like a loner. It's just sort of floating there amongst all these brightly colored, solid T-shirts and sweatshirts. So Band of Outsiders, big success, lots of learnings. You really f kind of found your calling. But like what happened with Band of Outsiders? And then how did you get back into fashion and launch Entire World? You know, so Band was something that however much of a left brain, right brain economics person, organized, hyper-organized, like strategic person I am, really did start as a kind of a proof of concept, like, can I do this? And it started so small and so organically grew. The men's taking on this sort of full breadth of collection items and then layering in women's and then the fashion world really paying attention to it. I mean, we were in so we were in tons of stores around the world and doing huge fashion shows and all this stuff. And there was never really a business foundation that was strong enough to support real growth off of all of that. And I found it really difficult to do that from Los Angeles. Just never really found the right people on the sort of business side, operations side to support that. But the fashion world and the customer was just embracing this brand that kept growing and growing. Uh, and I never really raised money until like seven years in. So with Band, it, it just got to the point where I didn't know how to grow it properly on my own. And I couldn't find the people to really help. I loved it and didn't want to give it up and didn't want to... I love my staff. I, I, I believed in it so much, but I also couldn't even see personally what everybody else was telling me was that, oh, this is a huge brand. This is a hundred million dollar brand in, in Japan alone, and you're going to be rich. And blah, blah. Like, I, I understood the enthusiasm behind the brand, but I, I really couldn't 
garner the resources to put together and execute a strategy to really scale it. And definitely felt that it wasn't really made to be scaled that big anyway. It was a small idea, literally small, tiny little button up shirts, skinny little ties, something small and special, but it took on a life of its own and got a little too big. And towards the end, I had to take on investors that did not share the same values as I did or my staff or the ethos of the the brand. And their intent was clearly to get me out of there, even though that's not what the the deal we went into looked like. And I really wanted to get out of there. I was it was eleven and a half years in, um, and I was just exhausted. Just didn't feel like I had the energy to really do what needed to get done to to make this work. You know, the thing about fashion is it's brutal when you're in the wholesale system specifically. You have a life cycle. It's very ephemeral. And unless you're one of those huge LVMH or caring brands who cycle in and out creative directors every four to six years, you're going to get stuck in this cycle where you're going to get into a down cycle where you're not the hot brand anymore. And there's mm-hmm. more, there's new hot brands. Um, it's just the nature of the, the business. It's what fashion is about that it, you just, you kind of have to accept it if you're in that world. And I saw that I was keenly aware of that and not did not have the financial resources to sort of rail against that. So I got out and spent like three years chilling, consulting, and building the blocks and the financing and partnerships that I needed to launch Entire World. I'm glad that you said chilling because I'm exhausted too thinking about what it must have been like at the end. I'm glad that, I don't know, just to hear that recalibration and restoration is part of the story. I mean, it has to be. Nobody can just yeah not burn out. You go to high school, it's four years. You go to college, it's four years. Maybe you go to graduate school for a few years. And then suddenly you're just in this big blob that is life. And <laughs> maybe you get, you're a freelancer and it's not so blobby, or maybe you have a flexible work schedule or good vacation time. But if you're an entrepreneur, you just don't turn off. I turned 40 right around this time. Mm-hmm. And on the one hand, I could get really depressed about it and be like, I'm a failure at age 40. I, this is the opposite of where I thought it would be. Most of the time it was, okay, what a perfect time to recalibrate and, and take a breath. I wasn't anxious because I had work, I had good consulting work, and I, I like consulting. It's, it's a different type of design. It's not an expression of me and my past and my quirks and all those things. It's, um, it's more of that economist doing the work, even if it is design work. And I had a notion of what entire world was. So I didn't mm-hmm. have this anxiety of a complete blank slate. I knew in a not-so-hazy way what I wanted to do next. So it was easy to build chill into that interlude. And now that you've launched Entire World, which is Sternbergian in its take on classics, but (laughs) perhaps a little more democratic, do you feel like you're more confident in being able to build something that can sustain you and your creative joy throughout the entrepreneurial process? Yes, no doubt, uh, for sure. And that's about economy. That's about realizing that you only need so many ideas. You only need to put so much time or effort or sweat into a lot. Like a lot of the time at Band of Outsiders, I was spending time just doing things that I didn't need to be doing. And I was a horrible delegator. 
I just felt like I needed to touch and feel everything or the customer wouldn't feel what was intended. And that's incorrect. That's not how you build an enterprise. And there is a way, I believe, to combine the two, like not necessarily to be the $16 billion company like The Gap, but the biggest goal with Entire World like internally was I can't be grabby over everything. I'm going to start with 10 employees and I have to be militant about the design codes and product codes and brand codes and all that stuff and and be deeply involved at the beginning in everything. So we do get all, that all set up correctly. But then I need to set up a system so that I don't have to touch everything every day and that people are motivated and uh, themselves, a graphic designer, content manager, women's designer, men's designer, all those people to, to make decisions and uh, be part of this movement. And so that's been great. And that's, that gives me way more room to find that joy uh, without all that extra work in between that I had probably convinced myself I needed to do because I felt like a fake for so long, like most of us do, uh -huh. uh, having not gone to design school and having succeeded pretty easily. Now it, all that's gone away. It's, there's, there's no ego, no humility. It's just sort of, I, I, I know what I'm doing here. I know what I want to get out of it. It is not easy. The barriers to success with this business model and this approach and this price point are much greater than Band of Outsiders. But I am obviously a crazy person, so here I am. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, crazy person. I mean, I like what you were talking about because we want to talk about your creative process. And it, it sounds to me like, you know, your creative process with photography and with sort of executing this really ambiguously nostalgic silhouettes in Band of Outsiders and these really provocative and evocative ad campaigns and, and theater around the fashion. I mean, it was really exciting, but you had to touch everything, which was unsustainable. But it sounds like now you have to design a system so that the system can operate and extend your inspiration and your vision out throughout other people who can also assume some ownership and, and percolate and perpetuate. Totally. And that's like a big thing. That's a big, yeah. <laughs> like with design in particular, like the success of this company, this my personal growth will be defined mm -hmm. by my ability to do that in a way that none of the good stuff gets lost. But in every single way, it matters. The staff are so dedicated. I have both of my companies because of the ambition of the ethos and the sort of the vibe that I'm trying to create and the fact that we're in LA and not New York where all the fashion industry is and all of that, people are so excited to work for me and to be in this world. But if they come into the world and then they're just sort of like a supporting character with absolutely no ability to provide input and no direction on how to do that successfully, how to succeed at that, that's a loss. That's, that's a losing thing. And that's a bad feeling because this isn't just about me. I mean, this has got to be about other people. But also just thinking about a set of design codes and product codes, you, you want it to be, of course, really personal at the beginning, but then I have to be able to extrapolate those references and points of inspiration and, and all of that into something that other people can personalize. And that will ultimately translate to the customer. So it's like, how can something be so hyper-specific and so idiosyncratic? Mm -hmm but also completely 
have a path to universality. That's a really big design challenge. Yeah. What can you tell us about the nuts and bolts of your process in terms of executing that? I'm seeing inside your brain and hearing how you're thinking about it, but what is that? What form does that take? Shape is that? I mean, it sounds like a lot of communication. Yeah, yeah. It's it's very messy. It's a messy, nonlinear process. With Band of Outsiders, it was a traditional fashion development cycle where I would come up with a, a inspiration for a season. And it would be rather thematic. And it would usually be, by the end, this sort of mishmash of ideas. And that's where newness would come. So I did a collection that was inspired by, I was into the sort of Mad Men era, but also all the psychedelia. So this collection was barbecue dads on acid for men's. You know, you do this set of mood boards with, with imagery. I use words a lot when I work. So whether that word is about just a feeling or an idea or a silhouette or a photographer's name or an actor's name, whatever mm-hmm. it is, like, you know, looseness, ease, uh, comfort, or those things I try not to think about too much at the beginning. So putting together that board alone and, and with a team at the time, mostly alone, would try to just organize that more into what would make up a, a saleable set of product and mm-hmm. would, would make up an interesting fashion show or presentation. With the entire world, it's quite different because we're not seasonal and it really is one point of inspiration or a set of design codes that doesn't need to thematically change all the time because it really isn't a fashion brand per se. We're not a basics brand. We're somewhere in between. So with that, it's like there is a cycle because there's a product development cycle. So as we move from one cycle to the next and they're driven by weather, uh, season weather, which is confusing because what we call fall is really hot now. So we're still figuring out that process, but it's very similar in that there will be things I feel like we want to achieve through the clothes mm-hmm. and or through the new stuff we're going to make and add on to it or through the color. And sometimes that's in, a, in an image and sometimes that's in a word. So like looking at next spring, not that anybody's going to knock me off, so I'm happy to share these things. You know, in terms of color, there's a certain sun-washed look that I want the palette to have, which is quite in contrast to everything we've done in the first year and a half, uh, which is very saturated, bright colors, kind of Roy G. Bib. Um, and then so that was just a feeling I had. And then I found images around that word uh, and stuck them on the board. I have that board out there so other people can interpret that. My women's designer, Nicole, who I mentioned before, uh, she wouldn't put an image up. She would bring it garment in, a vintage thing she found or she wears. And so we start putting together boards and racks and and more words are added onto that and more images and Mm -hmm. try to recognize some sort of pattern. Because the reality of now is whatever I'm feeling and want to infuse into these clothes and feels like a fresh idea for the market at that time, it all has to be the way we're doing this stuff. We're not doing fashion shows and there really is no traditional set of gatekeepers and effective fashion press right now, even for a wholesale business to communicate these things out there. So we really have to distill this stuff, like what we're doing next March, into a very clear idea that we can communicate in a very small little box on an Instagram app on people's phones. So the changing nature of the marketplace and how we're buying things and and learning about products, like that's actually informing or helping really to edit 
what we do. So the beginning is the same. It's the messy word image. I just want to feel it. What are we feeling type of thing? And then it's really informed by my merchandiser. It's informed by the marketing team. It's mm-hmm. informed by, okay, how are, we, how are we going to make this simple for people? How's this going to feel new for people? And how can we tell them that in a swipe, you know, a really quick moment? Man, it's edit, 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 refine, edit, edit. Yeah, yeah. But it's also like it's distilling. Like did you, like you said, you have to distill it down to the essence because if you lose the mm. essence, then you don't communicate, then you don't build that feeling, then it's not evocative. And that evocativeness is what you're speaking. That's your language. Exactly. And this is why I think companies like J. Crew and Gap that get so big and that become what we call in the business merchant-driven instead of design-driven. Um, mm-hmm. why their product just starts to feel like stuff. And, yeah, you know, there's no, and people love the word authenticity. That's fine. I think humanity is closer to what people are looking for when they're saying authenticity, like this human touch, this, this sort of element of something random brought this to life. The generation of this mm-hmm. wasn't an Excel spreadsheet or whatever. Those companies, the distillation is like disintegration. It just goes away. And it just ends up with some facsimile of a facsimile of something that a financial person thinks they can sell. Um, and this is the scary thing about fashion because it, it is so much based on a feeling. And it, then it's also based on this sort of set of feelings or trends otherwise that we have to invest in these ideas. Some of them are like, we did really well with that t-shirt and white, black, and navy. Let's try the purple. Why not? We're just buying a hundred of them. Sometimes it's just, it's... It's a certain weight of denim and like three silhouettes and we're investing hard in it and we really believe in this and it might not work. And we have a lot of colorful pants sitting in a warehouse that we don't know what to do with. <laughs> but because you, you do, you, sometimes you're just pinning the tail on the donkey and you, you have to do that though. Because if you're not allowing that sort of sense of risk and speculation, then there won't be any of that, that excitement and that feeling that we're talking about. Yeah. Of all the things I've ever acquired in my life, the ones that I have the most connection to are the ones where I can trace it back to some form of humanity, where I can feel touched by the creator of it somehow. And the rest is just stuff. Some of it's really well-designed stuff that works really well. But that's still a connection to humanity because you you know somebody's really worked on figuring out how to make it work really well. <laughs> yeah. I mean, listen, the... You know, where you guys first came into contact with me, that Design with a Reach project. Yeah. I'm so obsessed with furniture design and interior design, all that stuff. It comes very natural to me. But but what I love so much about that world is how the designers have been deified over the years. Eames, Rism, Wegner, I mean, you name it. Like, Mm -hmm. we know it's an Eames chair, right? It's It's a Marcel Brewer chair. It's such a wonderful thing. Fashion too, to some extent. Fashion less so somehow to me, because these objects, these pieces of furniture, these objects, there's so much less of them. There's so much less breadth in terms of product. Um, But I always just responded to that Mm -hmm. so much. The place that the designer took in the consumer's eye and and, and the retailer just leveraging them to sell sell the product. Super cool. I'd love to know what your favorite part is about your creative process because you've done so much. You've had your hands in every aspect of your businesses over the years. Is there one particular thing that 
just always ignites your passion and enthusiasm? I don't know if there's one particular thing. I find it easier to create imagery than to make clothing. (laughs) So, you know, the process of getting even just like a simple t-shirt or a pair of underwear or socks made, it's really hard. There's a lot of fabrication and development and people and factories and there's just, there's so much. And it, 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 it rarely turns out where it started and that's okay. That's the process. There's a lot of anxiety in the mass production of it and and I produce quite sustainably now, but there remains sort of uh, weight to to product development and product design. Whereas when, at the end of the process, at Band of Outsiders, I used to shoot uh, these Polaroid campaigns, and now I shoot video campaigns. That is um, super fun uh, and sort of always the exclamation point at, at the end of the sort of development cycle for me. It's important because it, in both cases, video, photography, whatever... I know that it's part of the design of the clothes. It's part of informing how the wearer is going to feel in these clothes, just like the design of the label. Um, everything we do to talk about the brand and to, to express the brand, clothing is just funny that way. You know, If you're wearing a white cotton poplin shirt, uh, if it's a Prada shirt or a Banana Republic shirt, and in the early aughts, they were the same shirt because Banana Republic was Prada light you would feel so much cooler and better and more confident, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, in that Prada shirt. Nothing was different about those shirts other than the label. And everything Prada put on their brand and everything Banana put on their brand. So I I love that about fashion. I think it's really, it's a mind trip and it's interesting. None of it can exist without a great product. I don't know. I'm also in the, like I'm about to go into like three hours of fittings we're all have some meltdown about the same t-shirt we've made five times not fitting right. So I'm on a video kick today, but I like it all. Does liking creating those images and creating those videos kind of go back to what Amy was saying in the beginning about putting something out there that connects with people in an emotional way, right? Do you feel like social media increased your satisfaction? <laughs> in this new age of social media where now you can actually like put something out immediately and temperature test it and see how people react and get emotional responses to what you're creating more quickly. Is that useful? Is it satisfying? At the beginning of Instagram, when it was less dense and there were less sort of layers of stories and IGTV and all, and there were less users we used it to launch a conceptual fashion show we did in Paris called The Longest Show Ever, where we had a model in a gallery window where we created this little mini home for him that he lived in for 36 hours. And we did this like Joseph Boys inspired fashion show. It was live. There was a live feed and there was a big social media element. It was a, it was a fashion show about a fashion show. It was really cool. And I loved Instagram for that. I loved uh, because that's how we gained a lot of followers way back in the day. And that's how I just, it was all about interaction. It was a, and we did another, we did a scavenger hunt the next season around New York city in this clear truck. And it was all social media driven. I thought that was really cool. And even now it's great. Like there's everybody, we all have our own TV channel and you can post this stuff and immediately make people feel stuff. It's so dense though. And it's harder and harder to reach people. 
And at the same time, those traditional channels we used to rely on, um, which at the time were like more like blogs and magazines, digital properties, those had a much more profound effect on a user or consumer. They were relying on themselves for information. So that little brief period before social media really blew up, it was much easier to get things out there. Now the magazines are all sort of dying and confused about what they're doing. Um, so it's a little bit of the wild, wild west. Hopefully we're, we're coming to some, a better place with all of it. Uh, but irregardless of all that, yeah, it's cool. The videos, the music, which I also, I dare to say write because I'm just screwing around on a synthesizer. All that stuff, it's all about this idea of utopia and this ambient music and sort of take people outside the chaos of social media and uh, even the way we shoot the video and light it and all that stuff. So, yeah, I love it. I just wish it was um, not so insidious or something. Not us, but the whole. Yeah, the system you're participating in. Yeah. I want to move on to you personally as a human since we talk about humanity. You were very successful with Band of Outsiders. Did that in any way affect you and your ego? Did you go on a roller coaster? How did you stay sane with the all of those accomplishments? I know you mentioned earlier that you like didn't really see it as this crazy uh, multi-million dollar brand and you kind of saw it as something small, but did any of that ever affect you and how did you deal with all of that? You know, it's interesting. I didn't go on some ego trip ever with band. I almost became more insular. It was really stressful. Like we talked about, I wasn't setting it up in a way that was sustainable. Uh, I was just so overworked. I was in Italy six times a year doing product development and checking out production. I was in Japan supporting our store there and the business there two times a year and in New York all the time and just exhausted and jet lagged and, and kind of alone with all that stuff. Like I didn't even have an assistant or somebody traveling around with me or a, a designer or anything like that. I wasn't quite enjoying it enough um, was my reaction to it. Maybe because I felt a little bit like a fake and I needed to keep proving myself or maybe it was just creative hangover after a fashion show when you kind of just want to hang because your, your dreams have all been out there and disintegrated and, you know, what's next. And it, maybe it's just there was a massive amount of work to do all the time. But the, the lesson there was, was not to – to stay within the realm of my britches or whatever. It was more to um, slow down and enjoy <laughs> things and acknowledge and, and celebrate and celebrate with the staff, with the people uh, who, who were part of all this stuff. Yeah, what I'm hearing, like that solitariness, if you, if you have to touch everything and everything has to be executed from, you know, some sort of recess of your own mind, and then you're the one who's assuming the responsibility and taking the blame for everything in the brand and traveling around by yourself, you're not building the kind of community that you're, you're actually fostering out in the world, but it's exactly. not. Exactly. <laughs> and it sounds like you're doing things differently this time. And I'm wondering what form that takes. I mean, we talked about, you talked about building the brand in a more sustainable way and you're building community within the brand, but in terms of you personally, how are you taking care of your health and your well-being and your creativity? Like what what are the things you're into these days in terms of keep, totally. keeping yourself full? I'm into weekends. <laughs> <laughs> weekends so, are like, the best. Yeah, it's awesome. Really, like, 
I mean, I used to just go to the office every week, every day, every weekend of band and not even think about it. And I would be happy to be there because I'd be alone and I wouldn't have any have to answer questions. Mm -hmm. all day. It was mm -hmm. completely normal Saturday, Sunday. I would spend at least four hours in the office if not more. So now I'm into weekends and just sort of puttering, which I think is an important part of the process or regeneration, the, the putter. And getting ready for retirement, because my understanding that is when, mm -hmm. when one retires, you, you just putter. I spend more time at the office communicating and just hanging out with employees and having fun and, and being loose. And we have more meetings, like a lot more meetings, but not in a sort of bureaucratic way. And just in more of a, this needs to get done. Let's all get together and just uncomfortably stare at each other for an hour while we try to come up with ideas not while I <laughs> torture like myself to come up with ideas and then yeah. let everybody in on the, you know, on the secret or whatever. Yeah. Way better. Way better. I mean, both awkward, way better, you know? And then you do that and then everybody's, it's everybody's idea. And they're going to, everybody's going to fight for that idea to happen. Everybody's going to be sad if it doesn't and, and share, share in that and sort of deflect some of that emotion. I still spend time alone with, but with a dog who is, Aww. who is a dream boat and with my friends, you know, I, I love LA. I think what, what I've learned in the last couple of years, especially when I took time off, travel had become anathema to me because mm -hmm. of band and all the work travel. And I really wanted that to switch. So the way I built this business and continue to in terms of production is I just put a hard line in the sand. Like I, I'm not traveling for product development and production. We can do this all remotely. Everybody does and we can send people other than me to deal with that stuff. So just take that all out of the equation, number one. So be in LA as much as possible so then I can go other places that have nothing to do with work. And at that, what I've discovered is I don't actually, whereas my instinct 10 years ago would be, I, I want to go check out Copenhagen. There's all this cool design stuff going on. My instinct now is I want to go to the Amazon rainforest, which I did, and spend 10 days on a boat going down the river and communing with birds and nature and pink dolphins and different little villagers along the way. You know, a, a banal trip to the Grand Canyon in Sedona just to stare at some mesas for a couple of days uh, is way more rejuvenating and uh, inspiring than going <laughs> to uh, a museum even to some extent, because a lot of that stuff is due to social media. It just feels like I've seen it all and it's everywhere. And it doesn't feel as necessary. So, and then part of this is the, the dog too, frankly, when you have an animal in your life, it's so close <laughs> to you, you just start to connect with, with the, the world and the earth and, and all the little creatures and, and, and trees and plants and all that stuff and in a completely different way, or at least I have. And that I find mm -hmm. to be the, the most powerful rejuvenator and, and sort of creativity, uh, source of creativity. Well, it, I mean, there's a very uncomplicated love with a with a dog and an animal, and then there's a comfort that comes from seeing how nature mm. and the universe organizes itself that makes you feel like the universe has got this. It's all going to be okay, and however this shakes out is probably how it's supposed to be. So why don't I just go along with it? <laughs> yeah, and you know, also like nature's can be brutal, and and that's okay too, and. You know, yeah. you don't have this is so much bigger than me, man. Like, I walk walk with Zod around the neighborhood every morning. I live in the hills of Silver Lake. It's just gorgeous. And I, you just look at a tree. You look at all these trees. These trees have been here for so long. 
They have seen it all. There's just so much, Mm -hmm. there's so much more beyond. It's very grounding. I see your trajectory and let's just fast forward all the way into the future. If you're in your 90s, what do you hope that looks like for you? Or what do you hope that you have in your rearview mirror to make you feel like you've Hmm. lived your life well? 90s, gosh. I mean, I hope I have my health and some young people around me of various generations which is something I, when I turned 40, I really started to think about a lot. I always have it because work, because of staff and young designers and all that stuff, but realizing just how important that, important that is. And I do have sort of utopian commune dreams of like some special little plot of land in Ojai where all of my good friends and I have our little prefab pods and meet for lunch and dinner and stuff. We can make that happen now. <laughs> I, we should make that happen now. It sounds divine. Yeah, I'd like I'd like a husband, a dude, yeah. a boyfriend. That'd be nice. I didn't have room for that guy back in the Band of Outsiders day, but we're making room for him now. Maybe the John Stewart thing with like you know like boats and cows and cats and dogs you pick up on, on the side of the road. You're painting the picture that I want for my life. Let's do this. i think we should i i really enjoyed your dome installation at design within reach and i also i think it's exciting the sort of bridges that you're building between well humanity and fashion but also the different areas of of these products that really do shape our lives they set dress our lives they definitely inform Mm -hmm. the mise-en-scene of our lives and they signal to the outside world what our values are and what our personality is like and does some of the communicating yes. for us. So in that way, it sort of is a a beacon. And uh, I appreciate your contribution to that. Thank you. I agree with everything you just said. That's, uh, that is <laughs> so cool. If our listeners want to find out more about you or your work, where can they find you on the web and social media? If you want to buy uh, really cute, amazing clothes, you go to <laughs> theentireworld.com. If you want to live in a world of dreamy, silly videos, you go to at entire world on Instagram. And if you're in New York in October, you're going to have a really rad pop-up somewhere downtown. Location TBD. This rad pop-up in October, location TBD, where do we keep our eyes peeled to find out that location when you announce it? You go back to that at Entire World account on Instagram and just engage yourselves. Okay. (laughs) Well, this sounds all very exciting and very mysterious and also very wonderful. And please thank General Zod for us, too. Um, (laughs) He's making an appearance on this podcast, and we love him. We obviously need pictures. Um, done no problem (laughs) thank you guys thank you thank you so much Hey, thanks for listening, everybody. We hope you enjoyed that talk. If you want to see images of Scott's work and read the show notes, click the link in the details of this episode on your podcast app or go to cleverpodcast.com where you can also sign up for our newsletter. We would love it if you would subscribe to Clever if you haven't already on Apple Podcasts or pretty much any of the podcast platforms. And if you would please do us a favor and rate and review, oh my gosh, it really helps other people find us, which helps us a lot. Five stars. Yay. We love to chat with you on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and you can find us there at Clever Podcast. 
Clever is created, produced, and hosted by us, Amy Devers and Jamie Derringer, also known as 2VDE Media, with editing by Rich Straffolino and music by L1011. Clever is proudly distributed by Design Milk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.